following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. I just wanted to start by um, asking you to consider some really famous lines from history. If I said to you, I have a dream, Martin Luther King, right? Oh, in the front, Mark, yes, 10 points. If I said to you, one small step for man, Neil Armstrong, of course. If I said to you, uh, well, George, we've knocked the uh, off. Hillary. Hillary, yes, 20 points to the middle. I think you could tell a lot about the Kiwi mindset from that one statement, conquering the greatest mountain on earth, and uh, well, George. All right, so when you hear those words, it's not as if you just go straight back to that one pivotal moment in history. It's like the whole story of that time comes to mind. When I think of that speech from Martin Luther King, um, I have a dream. I don't just think of his speech out there in Washington. I think of the whole civil rights movement. It's like that one line could come to embody the whole story. And it's a really powerful line, brings that whole story back to mind. In the same case with Neil Armstrong, it's like when you hear one small step for man, it's like the whole story of the space race, first to getting into space, first to the moon, Cold War between America and Russia, that whole story comes back to mind. That's the power of our words, and they're powerful. It's the power of a single sentence. And uh, as they would say in Monty Python, now for something completely different. We are going to look at a single verse in Ephesians today. So that's not something we normally do at Shaw. We, uh, we normally look at big chunks of scripture, whole chapters, passages, stories. Um, but if there's one thing I've learned from studying scripture is that there's always more going on in the text than you realize. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. As Reuben said, we're just going to look at verse 3. All right, the word should be up on the screen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. All right, we're done. That's the word of the Lord this morning. Wow, there are some really big ideas being introduced in this short little verse. Packs a punch. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts with praise, starts with worship. But what on earth do you think it means to worship God? I think we could be going all day on that question. Why start with worship, Paul? What are you trying to tell us? Who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing? Really? God has blessed us? What if I don't feel particularly blessed? What's going to count as a blessing? Mother Teresa saw her condition of poverty as a blessing, of God's blessing on her life. On the, other high, on the other hand, you've got these health, wealth, and prosperity teachers who would say that poverty is a curse, and money's the only blessing. They can't both be right. And then there's that little phrase at the end. Two words, in Christ. What on earth does Paul mean by that? It's not with Christ, it's not because of Christ, it's not through Christ, but in Christ. I actually want to start at those last two words, because I think if you understand that, a whole lot of what Paul has to say about other things also become clearer. Now, when Paul says, in Christ, or you are in Christ, he's often comparing it to being in Adam. Because to Paul, Jesus and Adam represent two fundamentally different ways of being human. 
In fact, they're actually the heads of two different families of humanity. So everyone in the world, before you come to faith in Jesus, is born into Adam, into Adam's family. As I was preparing this, I just really wanted Nick Jones behind me at this point to go, Adam's family. Okay. Maybe someone before your time. Okay. But we're all born into Adam's family, born in there. We're members of his family by birth. He's our father of the family we belong to. And all of us have inherited a sinful nature from our father Adam. It's, not nothing, it's got nothing to do with how many good things or bad things you've done. It's got all to do with who's your father, who's your daddy. Adam's my daddy. So, Psalm 51 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Paul says in Romans 3, There's no one righteous, no, not one. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We are born into a state of unrighteousness. We are in rebellion against God. We're separated from him. The whole family of Adam actually stands under God's judgment. Then on the other hand, you've got Jesus, who's the head of the new humanity that's been brought back into fellowship with God. So if we are in Christ, it means we've been taken out of Adam's family and we've been transplanted into God's family. Paul says we've received adoption to sonship through Jesus. Being part of God's family means we're no longer in the state of unrighteousness. We're no longer in rebellion against God. We're no longer separated from Him. And just as we are born physically into Adam's family, we are, we are reborn, born again by the power of the Holy Spirit into God's family. That's why Paul says if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Now there's a really important aspect of these two families that helps put what Paul is saying into perspective. The person who's the head of the family represents everyone in the family. Not just in a general sense, but in the sense that what's true of the head of the family becomes true of everyone else in that family. Now, I find that quite hard to wrap my head around sometimes because I'm not used to thinking of myself as being represented by anyone. I'm used to thinking of myself as this independent individual. I carve out my own path. The only time I need representation is if I've been naughty and I'm standing before a judge and I'll need legal representation. But what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is the head of God's new family and what's true of Jesus is now true of us. Think about that. Death did not have the final say over Jesus. And because we are in Christ, death will not have the final say over us. Just as Jesus was raised to new life and glory, so we will be raised to new life. We are in Christ. Romans 8 verse 1, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. That's because Jesus was our representative. Jesus was our substitute. The wrath of God against sin was poured out on Him on the cross. It is finished, He cried on the cross, and three days later, as He walked out of the tomb, the reign of sin and death and evil was finished. God will not condemn us anymore because we are in Christ. Christ has paid the price for us. Christ has paid the penalty for sin. There's nothing left to pay. There's nothing we can be condemned for anymore. Now, we are in Christ. Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father in heaven right now. Christ is our representative. And through Him as our representative, so are we. We are there before the throne room of God. Jesus is our representative. 
He's the one who intercedes for us. He's the one who's advocating for us. When we sin, when we mess up, Jesus turns to the Father and says, I paid for that one. And I paid for the next one. That one as well. Oh, yep, definitely that one. You know, what is true of Jesus is now and one day will be fully true of us. We are in Christ. Paul means a lot by just two words, eh? So that's what Paul can say. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, not just some blessings. Because if we are in Christ, then we have everything we need in Jesus. In Christ, God has given us the Holy Spirit, the very power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God in heaven. That power is living in us right now. You know, that means there's no sin we can't conquer. There's no one we can't love, no one we can't forgive, no issue too big, no problem we can't solve. Nothing we cannot endure because we are in Christ. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And I think at this point, it's probably just worth reflecting on how enormous that is. How enormous it is that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. All the problems you might be facing, all the difficulties at work, all the financial struggles, all the messed up relationships you might have, all the health issues, all the struggles with the Auckland housing market, all the political issues we face on a day-to-day basis, all the struggles with a secular culture, all the addictions and temptations we suffer. We have all we need in Jesus. Yeah, as I was preparing this message, I, um, there was one question that just kept coming up, and I just couldn't avoid it, no matter which angle I try to take. If all that's true, if Jesus has given me, if I have everything I need in Jesus, if God has blessed me with every spiritual blessing I need in Christ, is that enough? Is God enough? Is being in Christ enough for me? Is it enough that I have the Holy Spirit's presence with me? In his book, uh, The Greener Grass Conspiracy, author Stephen Altrug, he talks about his seriously unhappy childhood. I mean, it's just a terrible story. You know, he had two parents who loved him. They clothed him. They fed him. They took him to church. They took him to school. They took him to soccer practice. He had two siblings who loved him. They played with him. They never excluded him. His parents are still together today. And, um, you know, I mean, Oh, they still live in the same house, and uh, you know, Christmas, he always got good presents, and his birthday, he got good presents, and then he had grandparents who loved him. He didn't know any pain in life. He never went hungry. There was always food on the table. His dad never lost his job. It was, it was an absolutely, terribly unhappy childhood, he says. When I first read that, I had to read it again, going, is this guy insane? Am I reading the diary of a madman? But he said that there was one thing that really made him unhappy, permanently discontent, he called it. It was a small game he used to play. Played it all the time. You might know it. It's called the if-only game. You see, he was homeschooled, and he hated it. Some of you are homeschooled, and you love it. It's great. He hated it because it made him different from everyone else. And all he could think of was finishing school so he can go to university and be like everyone else. So he played the game. Oh, if only I could finish my schooling and go to university, then I'd be happy. So he did. He worked hard, finished his school, got into a good university, you know, lived on campus. 
and he was happy for about a week. And uh, then the reality of his new surroundings kicked in. The novelty wore off pretty quickly. Uh, he was sitting through eight hours a day of compulsory lectures that were so boring. He said it was more interesting to watch paint dry than sit and listen to some of these lectures. And by the end of the first week, he said, man, I was ready for that weekend. Oh, boy. And Monday rolled around. He started playing the game again. Oh, if only today were Friday, then I'd be happy. As the months wore on, you know, he started saying, oh, if only I could finish university and get a job, then I'll be happy. So he did. He graduated. He got a good job. And then again, the novelty of his new surroundings wore off pretty quickly. Instead of spending eight hours a day in a study hall or a lecture theater, he spent eight hours a day in a gray cubicle sitting in front of a computer answering a phone. And guess what? He played the game again. All right, oh, you know, if only I had a bigger office, then I'd be happy. Oh, if only I had a bigger salary. I wouldn't have to catch the bus. I could afford to drive into work. Oh, you know, I might need a bigger salary again just because I need to buy a house. If only I could buy a house. Oh, you know what? Forget all this. If only I'd actually gone traveling instead of taking this job, I would have been happy. Does that game sound familiar to you? Man, I feel like I've been playing that game my whole life. <laughs> I read in the papers a while back that us Kiwis, we spend a dollar and 14 cents for every dollar we earn year on year. Now, I know that's not everybody. There's some people that are great savers who don't spend anywhere near what they earn. And there are other people who spend way more than that. Some people are probably spending $2 for every dollar they earn. It's an average. But overall, I think it gives, us, gives me the impression that as a nation, we're a little bit discontent. We're not quite happy to live within our means. We're not quite happy with the lifestyle that our income will afford us. We're not just happy to own a house. We want a house and a batch, or and the boat. Well, I wouldn't mind that, actually. Two cars, and throw in those overseas holidays every year. We've got to have that. And then, gee, what's life if you can't have coffee from Starbucks every morning? Just not worth living, is it? But it says to me, we're, we're probably a little bit discontent as a nation as a whole because we're just not happy to live within our means. We're just not content with the lifestyle we can afford. We seem to be this discontent bunch of people. Now, when we talk about contentment and, and stuff like that, um, often someone will go the complete opposite direction. You know, they'll say, the problem is our stuff. It's all the stuff we've got. We've got too much stuff, got to get rid of it, give it away, get rid of all your stuff, that's the problem. Your stuff is making you unhappy. And there's plenty of good things to say for giving away stuff, there's plenty of um, good causes you can donate to, and it's really good to keep God's grace front and center by being generous. But I'm sorry to burst your bubble, uh, discontentment, got nothing to do with stuff. You could be dirt poor and have nothing but be incredibly discontent because you have nothing and you want everything else you don't have. You could be incredibly wealthy beyond my wildest imaginations, beyond Big Wednesday. Big Wednesday could be a drop in the bucket for you, yet you could be incredibly discontent. Something about having lots of stuff or having no stuff, it doesn't seem to change being discontent or unhappy. It's got nothing to do with stuff. Actor Jim Carrey, he said, I wish everyone could become rich and famous and get everything they want so they realize it's not the answer. One of the highest paid actors in Hollywood. It's a much deeper issue. You know, you could be on a diet having a tuna salad and smell 
a piece of bacon and suddenly you're gripped by this overwhelming sense of discontent. You want the bacon, but you can't have the bacon. Oh, love bacon. <laughs> it's a much bigger issue. It's got nothing to do with stuff. How much or how little stuff you have. Discontentment is an issue of misplaced worship. It's got nothing to do with stuff. It's all about worship. Whenever we worship something other than God, whenever we put something before God, whenever God is not enough, that's when discontentment follows. That's why Paul starts this passage by saying, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He starts with worship. We become like that which we worship. We're made in God's image. We're made to be like God, made to be like Christ. The more we worship God, the more we come to reflect His character and His heart. Worship is central to what it means to be a human being. Tom Wright says that evil is what happens when human beings created in God's image worship idols because that is when their humanness is eroded. In a society that worships idols, you see the destruction of humankind. Speaking in Sardinia, an island off the coast of Italy, uh, Pope Francis recently criticized the world's economic system. He said, we've made an idol out of money. And in many ways, you, you'd have to agree with him. You've got to understand the setting of what, he, what he's saying, why he chose Sardinia to announce that message. On the one hand, you've got some of the world's best five-star beach resorts on that island. They regularly house world leaders, prime ministers, richest, richest of the rich, all the actors and celebrities, they all go there. But it's a different story for the inhabitants of the island. Those who live there have really suffered a lot under the global financial crisis. Particularly those who depend on the, the island for their work, like agricultural sector and the industrial and mining sectors. A lot of the mines have actually closed or just reduced their output, so there's a lot of people outside of work. In some towns, they say that the youth unemployment rate's up to 51%. They're just staggering, eh? Half of your young, able-bodied, willing-to-work young people can't find employment. So what else do they do? The Pope said, Globalization has brought with it a culture where the weakest in society have suffered the most, and often those on the fringes fall away, including the elderly. They are victims of a hidden euthanasia caused by neglect. They are no longer considered productive. To defend this economic culture, a throwaway culture has been installed. We throw away grandparents. We throw away young people. Makes a good point, doesn't it? And I think we've seen something similar with the very poor standard of rest home care in New Zealand, of how we might be throwing away some old people as well. And that's what happens in a society where God is not enough, a society that worships idols. People are dehumanized. They're made into something less than human, and it's so easy just to throw away something that is less than human, to get rid of it, to marginalize it or sideline it, or just to neglect it, as we see, as Pope was saying. Maybe for you, you're not chasing money today. Maybe you're actually the good Christian. You're the one who serves at Sunday school, you volunteer for the Pac-Down team, and bless you if you serve in that team. Wow, those guys work hard. You've never missed a Sunday service, and the one time you forgot to tithe, oh man, you felt so guilty. The next week, you tithe double. But then just out of the blue, maybe something bad has happened to you. Maybe you've lost your job. 
Uh, you know, maybe you've seen your retirement savings have taken a hit through a bad investment. Uh, maybe you've gone through a relationship breakup you just didn't see coming. Or maybe it's been a worrying health issue that's really surfaced recently. Uh, you know, you, you got some test results back from the doctor and they're not looking good. And through it all, you've been crying out to God. You know, you've been asking God to help you and to strengthen you and you pray a lot. But if you're honest, you might have noticed a change in your prayer life. Your prayers are no longer a time to find shelter from the storm, no longer a time to connect or run to God. Your prayers are turning into demands. You're starting to give God ultimatums. How could you do this to me, God? How could you let this happen to me? Of all people, of all people, I've done so much for you. I don't deserve this. You owe me, God. I've done so much for you. You could fix my life in a second. Come on, I've done so much. You owe me. Friends, is God not enough? Is Christ not enough? Is it not enough that we have the Holy Spirit? I think sometimes we picture God as this cosmic bully in the sky with a stick who loves to beat us and watch us suffer, but I can't think of anything further than the truth. In Jesus, we see that God has entered into human history, entered into human suffering. He has taken on the suffering of the world onto himself. Friends, if God has saved us by grace, if he has raised us to new life, if he has sent his only son to die in our place, if he has taken the punishment that you and I deserved, is that enough? He stood in our place, innocent yet condemned. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. All so that we could be made new. All for love's sake. All so that we could be brought back into fellowship with God. Friends, if God has done all that for us, if he has brought us out of the pit to new life, if he has done all that, and he subsequently then allows you to go through a life of misery, of suffering, of hurt and pain, would God be unjust? Is God enough? Is it enough that we have Christ? Can we say that today? God, you are enough for me. If I never get another promotion at work, God, you are enough. If I never get to own a house in this crazy Auckland housing market, Lord, you are enough for me. If I never get to go into a bigger house, if my house is all I'm ever stuck with, Lord, if I never get married, Lord, if I can't have children, Lord, if this pain in my back never goes away, God, you are enough for me. I find it very hard to say that. Very, very hard. Paul, right into the Corinthians, he talks about a thorn in his flesh. He calls it a messenger from Satan sent to torment him. And uh, he says he pleaded with God three times for him to remove it. But God's response was, my grace is sufficient for you. God's power was made perfect in Paul's weakness, not in his strength. And so often we want to turn to Paul and say, no, you're wrong. God's power is not made perfect in our weakness. It's made perfect in our strength, right? You know, when I'm on top, when I'm popular, when I've got a lot of money, when my business ventures are working out, when I'm getting promoted at work, when I've got a lot of friends, when I've got the house, the two cars in the garage, when I've got lots of money to go and travel overseas, that's when God's most glorified in me and my strength, right? No, says Paul, look at Jesus, look at him on the cross. That's God's power made perfect in weakness. 
Paul writing to the Philippians, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a wonderful verse. We use it all the times, but we, we forget that Paul wrote that while in prison. Um, he wrote it after being pummeled with stones till he was almost dead. On five separate occasions, he received the 39 lashes. So that means on five different occasions, his back was whipped 39 times each. Give an indication. That means every time it's whipped, your flesh is pulled from your back, scourged, bleeding. I mean, sometimes that would kill people. You know, top it off, he started some churches and then they turned against him. <laughs> his credentials weren't good enough for the Corinthians. He seemed to have been followed around by this group of people that infiltrated his churches and directly undermined the gospel he preached. How on earth can anyone say that they are content with a life like that? By all other standards, that's an abject failure. But for Paul, God was enough. God didn't zap Paul with this contentment-shaped lightning bolt. I don't think he does that with us either. Paul says, I have learned to be content. Contentment is something we learn. You don't just learn it in the, in the downside. You learn it in the upside as well. We learn it through everything. We learn to be content with what God has given us. You can't drum up contentment. You can't just pick yourself up by your moral bootstraps. Think positive thoughts. Everything will be okay. Paul says, no, the strength of contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Again, it's every spiritual blessing we have been blessed with in Christ. God gives us the strength through Christ. It's a gift. It's grace. It's God's mercy, God coming down to us and strengthening us. It's not something you just pick yourself up and do it. It's supernatural strength. Interestingly, though, that phrase, the, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is probably better translated as, I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not a blanket promise that we'll be able to crush every foe with brute force. It's more of a passive idea. It's that God will give us the strength in His great mercy, in His awesome grace and power, he has gifted us with the strength to endure anything. Grace upon grace. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, he knew of this poor lady uh, in his congregation and she only had a loaf of bread and a wafer left one week. She was destitute. And he says um, when she broke bread for her, her meal that week, she said, uh, she said a prayer over the, over the food, and her prayer was this, wow, I have all this and Christ too? <laughs> I had to do a double take on that one too. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm going to go a loaf of bread left. But she knew that if she had Christ, not only did she have the strength to endure the hardship of famine that week, but anything else she had was pure blessing, grace upon grace. Salvation is by grace. Anything more is grace upon grace. Whether she had a mountain or a minuscule amount of food, she had Christ. Everything else was pure blessing. You know what it is for me? I love to be right. Hands up if you like to be right. There's a few of you. The rest of you are lying. Everybody likes to be right. I like to pick a good fight sometimes, you know, just for the sake of it. Like that Monty Python skit where they, um, they go into a room and he says, it's five pounds to have an argument. He says, I want to have an argument. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Oh, so irritating. 
But I like to have a good argument, I like to have a good debate. I was part of the debating teams through school, and um, I like to be right. And sometimes it's just not enough for me that I could be right. I want to be more than right. I want the other person to admit that I'm right and just bow down to me and say, your superior intellect is better than mine. And I'm just, I mean, even that can be not enough for me at times. I love to be right. Sometimes I fight it, even if I'm wrong, but I just want to be right. For me, sometimes that's how it just comes out that God's not enough. It's not enough that God has saved me. It's not enough just to let the argument go. Let the other person think what they want to think. They're probably wrong. It's okay. You can still be right and don't have to tell anyone. That's what it is for me. Sometimes that's how it comes out that God's just not enough for me. Maybe for you, your discontentment will come out in other ways. Maybe in your relationships. Do you find yourself criticizing your husband a lot? Has he always got some flaw you need to point out? Do you frequently compare your wife to other women? Is she never as good looking as the ladies at your workplace? Do your kids cower in fear every time they spill a cup of juice that you might unleash the fury on them? Is it not enough that God has saved you and then chosen to bless you with a family, with a husband, with a wife, with a house, with a job? Is it not enough? When is it enough? These things are God's gracious gifts to us. They are grace upon grace. So today, if you recognize your own discontentment, what do you do? Where do you start? It can just seem like this insurmountable task to get rid of. And What do you do? You start where Paul starts. Paul starts with worship. Come back to God. Worship Him for who He is. He alone is worthy of our worship. If today God is revealing something in your life that you have put before Him that you are worshiping other than God, guess what? That's grace. That's God's grace to you. God's not here beating you with a stick, trying to make you feel down on yourself all the time. You know why He does it? You know why God convicts us of sin and reveals the depth of our depravity to us? So that His grace and mercy can shine all the more brilliantly. Not so that we can wallow in the pits of despair. We can just walk around terribly beaten down and hung, heads hung low. God shows us the depth of our depravity, the depth of our sin, so that His grace and mercy shines all the more brilliantly, so that He can show us just how far He's brought us. We can, we can never exhaust God's mercy. We can never outrun His love or His grace. God pursues us relentlessly. Where sin abounded, grace superabounded. There is an abundance of God's grace in our lives that we will never exhaust. No matter how far you've run today, no matter where you've gone, no matter what you're doing, you will never, ever outrun God's grace. God will never let you go. He has got you in the palm of His hands, and nothing will snatch you out of that. Not even yourself. Salvation is grace upon grace upon grace. It is grace from first to last. It is all of the Lord. God's not this referee on the sidelines ready to blow you up for the smallest infraction you do. He is not an old headmaster who's grumpy and has got a stick. God has given us grace upon grace in Jesus. He is the loving God, the gracious God, the merciful God. He's just. He's fair. But He's also given us more than we deserve because we deserved nothing. God has given us grace upon grace. Today, I'd encourage you just to spend some time this week meditating on God's grace. 
Remind yourself constantly of what God has already done for you in Christ. Remind yourself of your true identity in Christ, of who you are in Jesus. You are loved beyond measure. When you feel that discontentment rising for all the things you don't have, just remind yourself that you have been blessed already with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We already have everything. One day we will inherit the new heavens and earth along with Christ. Paul calls us co-heirs with Christ. As the old song goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As we go from here today, may we find true contentment, fullness of joy in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for putting things ahead of you, for trying to fill the void in our lives that can only be filled by you. Lord, I thank you for your grace and your mercy that you welcome us with open arms no matter how far we've run, that you pursue us relentlessly and you love us more than we will ever know. Lord, we can never outsin your grace. Your love covers a multitude of sins. Lord, I pray that you would quench our thirst today with the living water of the gospel that we may never thirst again. And thank you, Lord, that in Jesus you have given us all we need. Fill us with joy, Lord, for in your presence is fullness of joy and let your goodness and love and mercy follow us all the days of our lives. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, Or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.